Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Recognizing the growing importance of sleep in critically ill adults, the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Pain, Agitation, Delirium, Immobility, and Sleep Guidelines provide recommendations on non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic interventions for sleep promotion. While non-pharmacologic measures such as noise and light reductions are largely supported by the guidelines, the use of pharmacologic sleep agents is not well delineated. On today's podcast, we have ICU pharmacist, Dr. Nikita Yagnala, here to discuss the evidence behind pharmacologic agents in optimizing sleep in critically ill adults. Let's listen in as Dr. Yagnala helps our patients catch some Zs. I hope everyone in the audience and everyone who's listening virtually today had a well-rested night's worth of sleep. I'm sure we can all think of a time in our lives where we haven't had a well-rested nights of sleep and how groggy and frustrated we probably felt the subsequent few days. Now let's complicate that picture and think about our more critically ill patients in the intensive care unit. Critical illness is a vulnerable point in our critically ill patients' lives with and with critical illness, there's an emerging role that sleep may really help with their recovery in the intensive care setting, as we've seen by the addition of sleep in the 2018 Pain, Agitation, and Delirium Guidelines. What I hope to do today in this presentation is really explore the role of sleep in the intensive care unit and dive deeper into some of the pharmacologic agents we can be utilizing to optimize sleep in these patients. To begin, I'll first recognize the physiologic consequences of sleep disturbances in critically ill patients. Next, I'll discuss the mechanisms of sleep promotion from pharmacologic sleep agents, followed by outlining an appropriate utilization of the pharmacologic sleep agents for our ICU patients. Sleep disturbances is quite common in the intensive care setting, with almost 50% of our ICU patients experiencing some sort of sleep disruption through their ICU stay. Sleep disturbances cause a lot of different physiological changes beyond just our understanding of neurocognitive slowing. It can cause vent ventilatory disturbances, neuroendocrine abnormalities, increase oxidative stress, and also attenuate patients' immunity. All of these physiologic consequences of sleeping also result in some clinical implications that are negative for a patient. The ventilatory disturbances could increase the difficulty with extubation, leading to increased hospital length of stay. The neurocognitive impairment prolongs not just in the ICU setting, but also may extend into the ward and on discharge as well, leading to lower qualities of outcomes in some of our ICU patients who've had poorer sleep disruptions in the ICU setting. The association with delirium and sleep is quite complex, as we're not super sure yet of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. A lack of sleep may increase the risk of delirium, but delirium in and of itself is going to exacerbate the patient's ability to fall asleep. So it's important to keep this association in mind when we're thinking about sleep and the sleep studies that we'll look at. Now, I've talked a lot about sleep disruption, but what does that actually mean? In order to appreciate what sleep disruption really is, it's first important to acknowledge what a normal sleep architecture looks like for everyday healthy patients. Our sleep architecture consists of four different stages. We go from wakefulness to falling asleep in the N1 stage, which is considered our light sleep stage. 
following M1 stage is going to be N2 and N3 stage, which are each moderate to deep sleep stages and consist of more of the restorative sleep that people may feel and feel more relaxed as a result of experiencing these stages of sleep. Our REM stage, or the rapid eye movement, is where the most restful sleep occurs, and it occurs in about 25% of patients throughout their night. With normal sleep architecture, we have multiple ways of measuring whether a patient is able to be in a certain stage of sleep or not throughout their stay. Polysomnography is really the gold standard method for measuring sleep and identifying which stages our patients are experiencing throughout their night. Polysomnography essentially consists of a continuous electroencephalogram, but there's a lot of limitations when it comes to actually utilizing it in our ICU patients, including cost, logistics, and requiring professional healthcare workers to be able to interpret this polysomnography data. Sedatives like benzodiazepine and propofol can also alter the results of the polysomnography waves, which makes it difficult to really assess the stages of sleep that a patient is in. Octography is another approach that's less validated than polysomnography, but is still utilized in critically ill patients in order to be able to assess sleep. Actigraphy utilizes a wristwatch to be able to assess a patient's movement and determine whether they're falling asleep or if they're in a wakeful state. The difficulty with actigraphy is that in the intensive care setting where there's a lot of patient care activities occurring, actigraphy results are usually not as accurate as polysomnography. The bispectral index is another method that can be utilized to measure sleep using a single electrode to produce brain waves in a range of 0 to 100, with 100 being the most wakefulness. The bispectral index, unfortunately, has not been validated to be utilized in critically ill patients, so for the purposes of this presentation, I won't dive into it too much further. The last option that we have for measuring sleep are subjective sleep surveys, with the most well-known one being the Richard Campbell Sleep Questionnaire. This questionnaire has actually been validated alongside polysomnography to be able to produce accurate assessments of sleep quality when we ask alert and oriented patients. Inherently, with any subjective sleep survey, however, we recognize that we're not able to use it unless a patient is alert and oriented and able to actually answer our questions. With each of these sleep measurements, we get a lot of different characteristics and descriptions that we can utilize and under to better understand our patient's sleep quality. Some of the different sleep characteristics that are measured out through these tools are total sleep time and sleep efficiency index, which is a ratio of the total sleep time to the time that a patient is in bed. As you can see, there's a lot of different characteristics that we can measure when it comes to sleep, but the difficulty inherently with all these characteristics is that we don't really know which one is actually attributed to the most beneficial clinical outcomes for our patients. What's been understood more and more is that perhaps a time in each sleep stage and a time in more of the deeper sleep stages like N2, N3, and REM sleep are probably going to be the most beneficial in assessing the restorative sleep function in our critically ill patients. In order to optimize each of these sleep characteristics, we of course need to be able to optimize our patient's sleep-wake cycle. In healthy adults, the sleep-wake cycle is really regulated by our circadian rhythm and our homeostatic sleep drive. The circadian rhythm cycles and syncs through with light, noise, and temperature, and is really going to be regulated by complex neurotransmitter pathways and the temporal secretion of melatonin and orexin. Our homeostatic sleep drive, on the other hand, is essentially defined as the drive to want to fall asleep. So throughout the day, we have this increasing drive to want to fall asleep, which ultimately decreases at nighttime when we fall asleep. While this is an extremely simplified depiction of what different pathways are affecting our sleep-wake cycle, we can utilize this depiction to better understand what's deranged in our critically ill patients in the ICU setting. As we can clearly see, 
the environment in and of itself with the constant lights, noises, and patient care activities is going to affect our circadian rhythm and our excretion of the various neurotransmitters and our excretion of melatonin and orexin. As a result, our critically ill patients have this increasing homeostatic sleep drive that simply continues to increase through the evening, but they're not able to obtain that quality level of restorative sleep in order to decrease that sleep drive and allow them to have a restful next morning. As a result of the disrupted sleep-wake cycle, ultimately, our critically ill patients have disrupted sleep architecture. It's been studied and found that in critically ill patients, it's not necessarily the total sleep time in a 24-hour period that's any less than healthy adults, but rather it's the fact that they have about 50% of their total sleep time at night and 50% during the daytime, which therefore results in sleep fragmentation and a disruption of their sleep-wake cycle. In addition, Polysomnography data has found that between healthy adults and critically ill patients, it's been found that critically ill patients have a lighter depth of their sleep, experiencing more sleep in their N1 and N2 stages rather than their N3 and REM stages, which would result in that more restorative level of sleep. Many of the risk factors when it comes to sleep disruption in our critically ill patients are really going to be inherent in the environment that they're in and the disease processes that are occurring in these patients. Naturally, noise, light, and the various patient care activities that occur throughout the nighttime are going to be disrupting our patient's sleep. Something else that's important to recognize as pharmacists is going to be the medications that are going to affect our patient's sleep. Naturally, we would know that steroids and vasopressors are likely agents that are going to increase our patient's wakefulness and decrease their sleep ability. But what's interesting is that a lot of our sedating agents like opioids and benzodiazepines actually reduce the amount of quality of sleep that our patients are receiving. While they do reduce wakefulness and induce a level of sedation, opioids and benzodiazepines tend to decrease the stages of N3 and REM sleep, which is considered the more deeper restorative sleep that our patients need in order to help the sleep actually help them feel better. When we think about pharmacologic agents that we want to utilize to optimize sleep in our ICU patients, we really want to choose agents that are not necessarily going to decrease their depth of sleep, but rather improve their sleep-wake cycle and improve the quality of sleep that they're getting. This leads me to my first assessment question. If everyone can either text Mayo RX to 22333 or respond at pollev.com slash MayoRx. The question is, which of the following describes the disrupted sleep architecture in critically ill patients compared to healthy adults? A, mean total sleep time is lower in critically ill patients. B, time in N3 and REM sleep is longer in critically ill patients. C, roughly 50% of sleep occurs during daytime hours in critically ill patients. And D, time in N1 and N2 sleep is shorter in critically ill patients. All right, as answers are rolling in, I agree with the majority of the group here that C is the correct answer. Roughly 50% of sleep occurs during the daytime in critically ill patients, and about 50% likely occurs at nighttime. For that reason, it's not necessarily the total sleep time that's reduced in critically ill patients, but rather when they're falling asleep and the depth and quality of their sleep. So A would be incorrect. Alongside that, the quality of the critically ill patient sleep is going to be lower. So they have more time in N1 and N2, which makes D incorrect, and less time in N3 and REM stages, which makes B incorrect as well. So we've established that sleep is quite disrupted in our critically ill patient population, and that comes with its own consequences from a physiologic standpoint and also from a clinical outcome standpoint. What do our guidelines really have to say about sleep in the ICU setting? 
I believe that our 2018 SCCM guidelines have done a good job of addressing that sleep is an extremely important factor that we need to optimize in our ICU patients. But what they don't really provide us are great recommendations on what to do from a pharmacologic standpoint to optimize sleep, really having no recommendations regarding melatonin or dexmedetomidine to improving sleep outcomes. All this being said, we still are faced every day in the ICU with patients who are not able to sleep properly, potentially having increased agitation and delirium overnight, and then that really keeps them in the ICU setting. And our teams come to us asking what agents they can trial to optimize our sleep, patient sleep. So that's why I urge everyone to develop their own cloud storage of knowledge or virtual toolbox, if you will, of the various sleep agents that you can utilize in your practice and help recommend to our teams to optimize our patient's sleep. In my personal cloud storage, I have melatonin, dexmedetomidine, vermelteon, and suvorexin as the four agents that I'll select from when optimizing sleep in my critically ill patients. As I go through each agent, its mechanism, and the evidence we have available to support its use, I urge everyone to adapt these agents and store them in your own cloud storage of knowledge so you know how to best utilize them in your patients when you, have, when you require to. We'll first start off with melatonin. Melatonin is a natural hormone found in our body, which has regulated its excretion through light. During the daytime, melatonin excretion is going to be suppressed, whereas at nighttime, melatonin secretion is going to be promoted and it will be released through the pineal gland. Through its agonism on the MT1 and MT2 receptors, melatonin is responsible for regulating our circadian rhythm, which takes about roughly three days to fully take effect and also restores energy balance and has the potential to reduce inflammation. The importance of melatonin supplementation in critically ill patients is really seen by the changes that we see in our critically ill patients' melatonin levels throughout the day. Here on the graph, I have a 24-hour profile of a urinary metabolite of melatonin excretion in different patient groups, with the light blue line graph showing our septic ICU patients, our dark blue line graph showing our non-septic ICU patients, and then our green line graph showing our healthy patient populations. As you can see, around the 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. time frame, in our healthy patients, melatonin excretion is increasing as it should, given that it's dark time and it's ready for the patient's circadian rhythm to get into a restful mode. But as you notice, specifically in our septic ICU patient populations, that melatonin concentration essentially stays the same and doesn't show that same effect at nighttime. This is really the theory behind supplementing our critically ill patients with melatonin at nighttime to help promote that increase in natural melatonin and promote sleep. A lot of the traditional older studies that were cited in our PADIS guidelines built that melatonin and its effect on sleep quantity. As you can see, a lot of these studies have differences when it comes to the methodology and the patient populations that were included. Rather than going through each study one by one, what I really want to highlight here are the limitations with all of these studies and probably the reasoning behind why our guidelines made no recommendations when it comes to utilizing melatonin. As we can see by the population numbers included in each study, the end numbers were quite low. The measurement of sleep was also extremely varied, going from actinography to the polysomnography to even using nursing assessment. As a result, the results of each of these trials were essentially no different than placebo, with the only result showing a positive outcome on sleep duration being by Shiloh and colleagues, but this being a before and after study with no control group. So ultimately, all goes to say that the evidence we have for utilizing melatonin to improve sleep quantity and total sleep time is minimal at best, close to nothing. 
But what can we say about melatonin and sleep quality? A lot more of the recent clinical trials have looked at melatonin and assessing its sleep quality through the subjective Richard Campbell sleep questionnaire. This questionnaire is a five-factor questionnaire that utilizes patients to rate a scale of zero to 100, with 100 being the best quality sleep and zero being the worst quality sleep. One of the more recent studies that looked at melatonin and sleep quality was by Gandolfi and colleagues in 2020. This was a randomized control trial that looked at about 50% surgical patients and 50% medical ICU patients, all of which were able to be alert and oriented and actually be able to answer the questionnaire. So no one was mechanically ventilated and no one was on deep sedative agents like benzodiazepines or propofol. What they found in the study were positive findings supporting that sleep quality is improved by the use of melatonin, more so driven by the one factor of sleep depth perceived by patients themselves. Contrasting the results of this study is a more recent study by Wilbro and colleagues, which is also known as the ProMedic study that was published earlier this year. The ProMedic study's primary outcome was actually looking at delirium, but their secondary outcome conducted the Richard Campbell sleep questionnaire in eligible patients in order to determine the differences in sleep quality when utilizing melatonin. As you can clearly see from the bar graph, the ranges of the sleep questionnaire results are extremely different and much, much lower than the ranges of the results from the Gandolfi study. I think one of the reasons to perhaps support this difference is the fact that patients in the Wilbau group actually were mostly on mechanical ventilation, and many of them were deeply sedated and not alert and oriented enough to actually answer this questionnaire. As a matter of fact, only about 20% of patients were able to answer the questionnaire on their own, and the remaining 90% of patients had a nurse actually respond to the questionnaire on their behalf. So this really kind of comes to show us that assessing sleep quality and sleep in general is so variable, and even a questionnaire like this is so subjective in nature that we're going to see completely different scales and different results, asking patient to patient, asking nurse to nurse. Another difference that you might notice from both of these studies is the dosing of melatonin, where Gandalfi received 10 milligrams and patients in the Wilbrow study received 4 milligrams. This raises the question if there's really a difference when it comes to increasing the dose of melatonin. And I think this is still something that we're all trying to tease out in practice. What I can say we know for a fact right now is that our adverse effect profile for melatonin is quite benign. Even at doses up to 200 milligrams nightly, really what we're seeing might be a headache or fatigue, but in comparison to placebo and all of the studies I've mentioned so far, there were no significant differences when it came to safety outcomes or any of these adverse effect profiles. The next question that we think about is whether there is an actual dose response effect for melatonin. More recent data looking strictly at healthy adult patients comes to show that melatonin's dose responsiveness might only play an effect at plasma levels at around 50 to 200 picograms per milliliter. All that being said, that as you can see on this graph, perhaps melatonin doses greater than one or even three milligrams might potentially not have a dose response effect in this healthy patient population. That being said, this data is only supported in healthy adults, so it's hard to extrapolate this for critically ill patient populations where absorption issues might potentially limit this finding and not be um, able to be extrapolated. All that goes to say, I think in 
a better understanding of melatonin and recognizing how far we should be going up on this dose, I personally believe that kind of taking this finding into account and acknowledging that our critically ill patients may be absorbing at a different rate than our healthy patient populations, perhaps going for a rate the goal of melatonin of three milligrams to six milligrams is going to be optimal. And maybe pushing the dose to 10 milligrams really isn't going to create much of a benefit. Transitioning from melatonin to rameltion. Rameltion is a melatonin receptor agonist. Rameltion has been FDA approved for sleep onset insomnia in 2005 and is different from melatonin in a variety of different ways. Rameltion's mechanism of action really prim primarily optimizes the agonism of the MT1 receptor. In doing so, it's postulated that rameltion regulates the circadian rhythm to a higher degree than melatonin does. Other important um, differences are the fact that melatonin, of course, is a dietary supplement, whereas rameltion is an FDA-approved agent with a known concentration of active drug in every um, tablet. The dosing ranges are also quite different. As we've discussed, melatonin has a pretty wide dosing range, whereas rameltion only comes in a one dose of eight milligrams every night. The thought behind utilizing rameltion for sleep in critically ill patients comes from the theory that rameltion may potentially help reduce delirium in sleep patients through this M1 receptor agonism and regulation of the circadian rhythm and some of the other pathways that may promote delirium. Really, one of the bigger studies that looks at rameltion and its evidence for both delirium and sleep in critically ill patients is by Nishkami and colleagues in 2020. This was a randomized control study that randomized medical intensive care unit patients, about 40% of who, which were on mechanical ventilation, to either rameltion or placebo. They looked at primary outcomes of ICU length of stay, followed by delirium occurrence and sleep awakening. As you can see on the results table, each of these outcomes were statistically significantly different and benefited the patients who received rameltion after correction for baseline differences in characteristics. All that being said, I want to caution you all before you really interpret this data, recognizing that the best data we have for Rameltion itself is quite flawed. This study was highly underpowered. They required about 150 patients to actually reach power, but they were only able to enroll 88. In addition, when we're looking at sleep awakenings and the sleep quality of these patients, the study designers actually conducted a retrospective chart review in order to assess for sleep quality rather than doing it as part of the randomized control trial. So again, poor methodology and extremely difficult for us to really interpret. I think at this time, what we know is that theoretically, rameltion works from a chronic insomnia standpoint, but its efficacy in our critically ill patient population is unclear, though it seems to be as safe as melatonin. Summarizing what we know so far about our melatonin and melatonin receptor agonists, I think at this point, we can establish that melatonin levels in ICU patients are quite abnormal and unpredictable. What we also know is that melatonin and rameltion seem to be safe options that target the circadian rhythm pathway. That being said, the studies we have currently for melatonin and rameltion are highly variable, underpowered, and have significant limitations. And we don't yet know if one agent is better than the other because we don't have comparative data to say so. I think in terms of recognizing which agent to utilize, if our institution allows for melatonin as a supplemental agent, as a non-FDA approved agent to be utilized, perhaps it'll be cheaper and it may be a more preferred agent. And perhaps it's more preferred in non-ventilated non patients who are able to be alert and oriented and able to utilize the RCSQ questionnaire to actually be able to say that they've had improved sleep quality. Now that we've discussed melatonin and rameltion, let's move on to dexmedetomidine. 
dexmedetomidine works as a presynaptic vessel alpha-2 agonist. In doing so, it's going to provide negative feedback to our synaptic vessel and decrease the amount of norepinephrine that's going to be released and bind to the alpha-1 receptors on the locus cerulis. By doing so, dexmedetomidine inhibits the sympathetic activity of norepinephrine, therefore providing analgesia and a level of lighter level of sedation. This lighter level of sedation and the decrease in insympathetic activity is really going to be what has brought in dexmedetomidine to its use for sleep promotion. In comparison to a lot of our other deeper sedative agents like benzodiazepines and propofol, dexmedetomidine has been proven to potentially reduce the incidence of delirium because of this inhibition of sympathetic activity and perhaps because of the lighter level of sedation that dexmedetomidine provides in comparison to our deeper sedative agents. Through those studies that prove the dexmedetomidine may be superior from a delirium standpoint have come hypothesis generations about dexmedetomidine's positive impact on sleep and sleep architecture. There have been a lot of studies who, that have actually looked at dexmedetomidine and its ability to improve patient sleep architecture. The first one was by Otto and colleagues in 2012. This was a descriptive study looking at adult ICU patients on mechanical ventilation who did receive a concomitant sedative agent. Patients were titrated to a goal RAS of negative one to negative four and received dexmedetomidine solely at nighttime for the promotion of sleep. This study used polysomnography to assess the stages of sleep in these patients and assess the total sleep time at night for these patients. And what they found was that patients had about 78% of their total sleep time occur at night, which is definitely better than the 50% average that we're seeing in a lot of our ICU patients. From this small descriptive study, another descriptive study was conducted in 2014. In this study, adult ICU patients who were on mechanical ventilation essentially received dexmedetomidines on days two and three, titrated to a more strict goal RAS of negative one to negative two. These patients didn't receive any concomitant sedatives, and polysomnography data was utilized to determine the depth of sleep that these patients had when they were on dexmedetomidine, and then the day prior when they were not on dexmedetomidine. What they had found was that patients when receiving dexmedetomidine had a greater depth of sleep, less sleep fragmentation, and a greater sleep efficiency overall compared to the days when they didn't receive dexmedetomidine. All of those hypothesis generating findings have really come to fruition in a randomized control trial by Wu and colleagues in 2019 that really showcased dexmedetomidine's ability to perhaps improve objective and subjective sleep quality. In this randomized control trial, 61 SICU patients were randomized to receive dexmedetomidine at more of a subtherapeutic dose of 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per hour for a rascal of around zero to placebo. These patients were not mechanically ventilated. The outcomes included polysomnography data, total sleep time, sleep efficiency, and also subjective sleep quality. As we can see by the results table, all of these outcomes were positively influenced by the use of dexmedetomidine, as dexmedetomidine increased the stage of N2 sleep, decreased the stage of N1 sleep, and improved total sleep time and sleep efficiency. Ultimately, what the study designers concluded is that dexmedetomidine is able to provide a deeper level of sleep compared to placebo, provide higher sleep efficiency, increase total sleep time, and also improved subjective sleep quality per patient report. All this goes to say, I think what we can take away from all this data is that overnight dexmedetomidine infusion has the potential to improve day to night sleep cycle and reduce the incidence of delirium compared to some of our more aggressive, deeper um, agents. 
Dexmedetomidine has not, only been, has not only been shown to improve our subjective sleep quality per patient report, but it seems to also improve sleep architecture and objective sleep quality through polysomnography data. I think when we're thinking about utilizing dexmedetomidine in our patients, it might be a preferred option in our hemodynamically stable, mechanically ventilated patient populations who are requiring some level of sedation overnight. Moving from dexmedetomidine to our last agent, suvorexant. Suvorexant is essentially an orexin receptor antagonist. We can think about orexin kind of like the opposite of melatonin. It's also a hormone that is going to be released and regulated through light, but rather than being released in the nighttime, it's more so released and promoting its secretion during the daytime through light. By binding to orexin receptors, our orexin is going to be regulating wakefulness, food intake, and energy. Through the antagonism of orexin receptors, suvorexin is going to theoretically be helping to promote sleep and promote sleep maintenance. Suvorexin has been FDA approved in 2014 for this reason, for chronic insomnia and sleep onset and sleep maintenance. The thought of utilizing suvorexin in our critically ill patient populations really came to be because there is this postulation that orexin itself is elevated in the setting of Alzheimer's and in the setting of delirium. So the thought of utilizing suvorexin in critically ill patients is that by utilizing an antagonism of the orexin receptors, we're potentially targeting one of the many pathways of delirium and potentially reducing the incidence of delirium. And that's really kind of the data that we have for suvorexin in the setting of critically ill patients. There's about seven studies, all of which were conducted in Japan, all mostly looking at delirium as the primary outcome. While my talk specifically is about sleep in critically ill patients, I thought it was appropriate to include this data, just recognizing that there is this key association between delirium and sleep. We don't know which comes first, but we know one affects the other in multiple different ways. So I thought it's relevant to include this data and just appreciate what we know so far about suvorexin in this setting. Rather than diving deep into each of these studies, what I want us all to focus on first is the results column. As you can see, you'll see delirium as the primary result for most of these studies, and you see a lot of down arrows suggesting a positive outcome by utilizing suvorexin for delirium. That being said, I want to caution everyone in looking at those, at those results and kind of focus on some of the nuances of each of these studies. As you can see, four out of these seven studies utilize a GABAergic agent or trazodone as the control group, whereas the intervention group is suvorexin. As we know, GABAergic agents and trazodone are probably going to have some level of adverse effect and have an increased risk for delirium at baseline. And so these four studies are probably just telling us that suvorexin is better than GABAergic agents, which we already know GABAergic agents are increasing the risk of delirium. So I personally believe that the findings of these four studies aren't really well warranted and shouldn't be, should be taken with a grain of salt. The remaining three studies that we have include a randomized controlled trial by Hada and colleagues in 2017, which is really the most cited study um, when we're looking at rounds and when our providers are um, telling us about utilizing suvorexin in this setting. The subsequent two studies are by Tamura and colleagues and Hada and colleagues in 2019 and are more observational studies. Taking a look at the randomized control trial, we do see this positive outcome of lower incidence of delirium in the suvorexin group between the placebo group, but the secondary outcome of sleep parameters and total sleep time shows no difference. The same study designers conducted a prospective study later on in 2019 and looked at sleep quality and showed an improvement in sleep quality in our patients who received suvorexin. 
But as you can see, patients who receive suvorexin also usually receive Remelteon first prior to receiving suvorexin. So this study perhaps hypothesizes the fact that Remelteon and suvorexin together might promote sleep quality, but suvorexin alone, as we know right now, may not be promoting sleep quality, and we really don't have the best data to support its use solely for sleep in our ICU patients. All in all, what we know about suvorexin is that we potentially may have some elevated plasma orexin levels associated with the development of delirium, and suvorexin has this theoretical potential to help that pathway. But delirium, as we know, is extremely multifactorial in nature, and targeting one pathway isn't going to be the cure for delirium. Suvorexin may help regulate the sleep-wake cycle, potentially in combination with Remelteon, but further studies are going to be warranted, as all of our current studies are quite flawed and underpowered. So now that we've addressed all four of our different sleep agents, I want to move on to my second assessment question. Based on the evidence presented, which of the following statements is correct regarding the proposed mechanisms and efficacy of sleep agents? A, Remelteon is superior to melatonin in promoting sleep onset and depth. B, melatonin doses should be maximized at 10 milligrams nightly to optimize efficacy. C, dexmedetomidine has been shown to improve sleep architecture. And D, suvorexin alone promotes sleep onset and prevents delirium compared to placebo. All right, I agree with the majority of the audience here that dexmedetomidine has been shown to improve sleep architecture. Kind of summarizing our agents, melatonin and our melatonin receptor agonists, we don't have phenomenal data to support its use for sleep onset and promotion, and we don't know right now if one is better than the other, so A is incorrect. I think from a dosing standpoint with melatonin, perhaps just going for three to six milligrams is going to be sufficient, and increasing that dose to 10 milligrams is likely not going to do much for our patients. And finally, with suvorexin, as we've established, the data right now is not there to support its use alone for the prevention of delirium and for the promotion of sleep. So now that we have all of these agents in our cloud storage of knowledge, how do we utilize them to optimize the sleep-wake cycle in our ICU patients? I think first and foremost, what we need to recognize is that the ICU environment in and of itself has so many different risk factors that are contributing to the lack of sleep in our patients and prioritizing non-pharmacologic measures, addressing each of these risk factors is really going to be primary. From a pharmacist standpoint, retiming overnight medications like our Tylenol or albuterol nebulizations once a patient is able to get to that point is going to be definitely key, doing four times per day rather than every six hours throughout the nighttime minimizing overnight lab draws and obtaining a good medication history on our patients so we know if they are taking any medications at home for sleep promotion is going to be extremely important as well. After prioritizing non-pharmacologic measures, of course, is going to be reaching into our cloud storage of knowledge and figuring out how to utilize each of our four agents to help optimize the sleep-wake cycle. There's a variety of ways we can be doing this and different considerations that we can be making. When looking at all of our pharmacologic agents and looking at some of the ideal properties of our sleep agents, we can really see that melatonin hits the jackpot when it comes to ease of administration, titratability, and the low adverse drug effects and cost as well. What I really want to highlight here is that while dexmedetomidine is an IV agent and it has a rapid time to effect, some of our other agents like melatonin and suvorexin that act on the sleep-wake cycle might actually take about two to three days to actually completely regulate the circadian rhythm. When looking at cost, melatonin, of course, is going to be the cheapest at around 25 cents average wholesale price, whereas Remelteon and Suvorexin both have an average wholesale price of about 14 to $16. Dexmedetomidine, of course, being a more expensive IV agent is going to be much more expensive. 
on an average 80 kilogram patient who's receiving overnight dexmedetomidine for eight hours, that's going to cost about $100. So just important to keep in mind. Additional considerations to make, of course, are going to be patient-specific considerations. Perhaps in our patients who have sepsis or in the ICU, maybe they're more melatonin depleted and would benefit from adding on melatonin agonist. In our mechanically ventilated patients, of course, we can reach to something like dexmedetomidine. In our surgical patients and our elderly patients, I included these patients on this table solely to let you know that all of these agents have been studied in these specific patient populations and have good safety data to support its use. So taking all of these considerations into account, I wanted to provide you all with the algorithm that I've come up with to optimize pharmacologic sleep agents in our ICU patients. First and foremost, we want to, of course, optimize our non-pharmacologic sleep measures. Following that, I believe that it's important to assess alternative factors that are contributing to sleep disruptions. Is the patient in pain? Do they have additional discomfort? What medications are they taking at home for sleep that we should probably resume? If our patients are taking trazodone or quetiapine or other agents at home for sleep, I think it's appropriate to continue them just because we don't want to just omit what they're taking at home and we don't want to put them at an increased risk of withdrawal by withholding those medications. From that point, it's important to stratify our patients into those who are intubated versus not intubated. In our intubated patients who are requiring sedation overnight, I think it's appropriate to utilize dexmedetomidine as it's shown that improvement in sleep architecture and subjective sleep quality. In our non-intubated patients, when we think about an agent to throw on, I think it's important to consider the state that we're in. Melatonin or remelteon, depending on the institution you're in, could be, um, could be useful to utilize waiting about three days to see if it truly takes effect. I have suvorexant listed here as a second line option. And the only reason I have it listed is because there are those certain patients where we're giving them melatonin. They're essentially clinically stable, but they're so agitated and delirious that they're requiring a dexmedetomidine drip and that they're staying in the ICU because of this initial sleep problem. I think in these patients, instead of throwing on something like an antipsychotic, perhaps trialing a safer agent like suvorexant could be beneficial just compared to some of the deeper agents and the more riskier agents that we utilize like antipsychotics in practice. Dexmedetomidine, of course, is going to be our last line agent to utilize in the case that our patient is extremely agitated and requires some sort of IV sedative agent. So with that in mind, I wanted to end with the patient case. AB is a 65-year-old female with past medical history of depression and chronic pain admitted to the MICU for management of altered mental status and septic shock due to community-acquired pneumonia. On hospital day one, AB was intubated on propofol, resuscitated, and got IV antibiotics. The team decided to hold her home trazone and oxycodone due to altered mental status. On hospital day four, our patient is improving clinically, off pressors, extubated, IV antibiotics were transitioned to oral, and the team wants to transfer her to the floor the next morning. Unfortunately, overnight, she became quite agitated, was unable to fall asleep, and our residents panicked and started dexmedetomidine. Over the course of the subsequent few days, our patients had ongoing overnight agitation requiring dexmedetomidine. At this point, she completed her antibiotics, is clinically stable, but is still having an issue with falling asleep, having a three-hour total sleep time, and the team starts quetiapine for her. My final assessment question for you all will be, what recommendations do you have to optimize AB's sleep? I'm seeing add melatonin, restart home trazodone. I like that idea. I think doing a good medication history, figuring out what she's taking that oxycodone ER for, that trazodone for, 
assessing her pain, recognizing that there's probably a lot of home medications that she's using at home for lack of sleep, resuming those agents, then perhaps trialing melatonin are all great options. This all just goes to show that there's a lot that we can do at pharmacists, not only from the tools and the four sleep agents we have available, but also the medications the patient's taking at home and just really assessing the patient holistically. So to summarize my presentation today, I think we've all established that disrupted sleep architecture in critically ill patients leads to negative physiologic and clinical consequences. That being said, the optimal measurement for sleep quality and quantity in critically ill patients still remains unknown. For that reason, the data that we have to support the efficacy of oral sleep agents is quite limited, though the safety seems to be well established. I think when we're approaching sleep in our critically ill patients, based on the poor quality of evidence we have right now, it's important to continue optimizing our non-pharmacologic measures, treating the patient as a whole, knowing what they're taking at home, and then just utilizing the safer options that we have to optimize their sleep-wake cycle, rather than moving towards deeper sedative acting agents. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Mm -hmm.